Good evening. Well, how'd you do? Did you do really well at not worrying about whether or not you did well in your meditation? <laughs> doing well or doing poorly, it's, um, it's a big trap, you know? I mean, it's, uh, we're all busy doing it a lot of the time, but it, you know, how would you know? <laughs> which is good and which is bad. And usually, of course, the way it works is you, if you're used to finding fault with yourself, you will continue doing that no matter how good your meditation is. <laughs> and if you're used to, you know, being happy with how you're doing, then you'll be happy with how you're doing no matter how awful it is. <laughs> it's, you know, like people winning the lottery. You know, they've done studies. There was just a couple Thursdays ago, there was... Uh, a special on Channel 7, ABC, Ted Stossel, on the secret of happiness. Who's got it? How to get it? <laughs> he didn't mention the Buddhists. He mentioned the Amish. You know, and he said they get a lot of visitors and it, they make a lot of people nervous because people are worried that the Amish are happier than they are, even though the Amish don't have radios and televisions and washing machines and dryers and refrigerators and, you know, mechanized travel. And so people worry, like, oh, so what if they're happier than I am? <laughs> um, and they had some lottery winners on who weren't very happy, <laughs> too. <laughs> and after they said how winning the lottery doesn't make you happy, um, Ted Stossel commented, well, I didn't see them giving the money back. <laughs> <laughs> but they've done studies. Uh, there's been studies done of, on lottery winners, and usually people are ecstatically happy for six, eight weeks, maybe three months at most. Three months is, you know, standard honeymoon period. 90 days. And then, and then it's back to being however you were. You know, so if you have a habit of being happy, you'll be happy whether you win the lottery or not. And most people, they were kind of unhappy before they won the lottery, so then they go back to that. And they help all this money, too. <laughs> so uh, this is one of the problems about good and bad and right and wrong and, you know, how well are you doing and are you a success and are you doing well? And it's a problem with meditation because various people give this kind of advice, you know, how well are you doing? And we really want to, we often want to know how well am I doing so I was reminded, um, tonight I'm reminded of a story that is in one of Jack's books, The Still Forest Pond, isn't it? Still Forest Pool? Uh, you know, the teachings of Achan Cha, and there's one place where Achan Cha says, you know, a lot of people, they come and ask me, um, they say, I have a hot rock in my hand, what should I do? And I tell them, let go. <laughs> and then they say, no. I wanted the rock to be cold. <laughs> so uh, I think that, you know, doing well in meditation is like this. It's a hot rock, you know. And it's not just meditation, it's all throughout our life. Uh, how well are you doing at it? And are you doing well or poorly? And are you good or bad? Are you getting appropriate amounts of approval and uh, you know, and and Achan Cha says, well, let go. And, and then we say, no, I just want to be a success. 
I just want to be good at it. I'd like to be the best, you know. And so we keep that hot rock, whether, you know, and then we think, maybe I'll get some tonight. Good luck. Some better teaching, you know, some good teaching tonight on how to get better at my meditation. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> and this is especially problematic, you know, there are kind of, although they certainly overlap, there's kind of two uh, meditation traditions, the one where you have a lot of specific things, you have particular techniques or practices, and then uh, there's another meditation, the other meditation tradition is, uh, we won't tell you what to do. <laughs> do you have ghosts here? Or? <laughs> Those are old souls. In, in young bodies. Uh, <laughs> uh, <clears throat> what was I talking about? Boy, I just lose it so fast there. <clears throat> oh yeah, the other tradition doesn't tell you. So, so in the tradition that doesn't tell you, you know, that tradition assumes everyone has the capacity to meditate, to find out how to meditate. Everyone has the capacity to live their life, your life, your own life, you have the capacity to find out how to live your life, then why would you need some instructions? And then as though you couldn't. You know, it's like all the diet plans. Since you're too stupid to figure out what to eat, do what I tell you. Here's the plan. And impose this plan on yourself. And do what I tell you. You know, the Maccabotic said that. The McDougal says that, and Orny says that. And they all say, you know, you can't figure out what to eat. You better let us tell you. <laughs> and, then, and then you start to feel badly after a while. Oh, I'm not following the plan. I, don't, I have a lot of resistance to following this plan. I have a lot of resistance to doing what I'm told. It's good for me. Uh-oh, I'm a bad person. And that's really different than, like, could you, don't you think you have the capacity if you actually started to pay attention to what you were eating and notice how you felt when you ate it and how you felt afterwards, that over time you would find out what, what is good for you to eat. And you could learn actually to trust your own being, to find, you know, and find in your own way. I have a friend who did that, you know, and if, and she, <clears throat> she for many years was bulimic and she was eating binge eating and vomiting and, you know, all this stuff and gaining weight and losing weight. And she uh, went to India, did it in India, too. She's a, she's a professor of Hindi languages, you know. And uh, I didn't realize that she was, I know I knew her for several years. I didn't know until years later that she had this problem. She kept it secret. And then she said one day, and no, and then she went to therapy to see what the, the therapist would tell her various things, do this and, you know. And then after a while the therapist dumped her and he said, you have too much resistance. He didn't say, I haven't found a way of working with you that's satisfactory for me. <laughs> he said, you have too much resistance. <laughs> and 
Um, but she, and then she, you know, she tried gurus and Zen teachers and various things, you know. And then she finally realized one day, she thought, why don't I just figure this out for myself? I'm going to find out for myself in my own life, from my own experience, because just trying to do what other people tell me to do isn't working. And I'm not happy, and I don't seem to like just doing what I'm told. Why don't I find out how to do this? And she said, at that time, I had no reason to believe I could do it, because I'd never done it. I'd never said, you know, I'd never decided, I will find out how to do this. I always thought I should get somebody to tell me how to do it. And she said that was, you know, really pivotal decision. I'll know, you know, and there's no, uh, for that kind of decision in her life, there's no evidence. You know, there's no track record, there's no proof that you could do it. So it's a kind of a leap, you know, and it's some confidence or faith, choosing to have confidence or faith in you yourself, in your own life, your own being, in your capacity to find your way. So this is, uh, and, and then she started uh, keeping little notebooks and, you know, it took about four years, but it was very thorough. And of course, what she started, you know, in a way, she discovered Vipassana practice without even knowing it. <laughs> because what did she start doing is noticing things. You know, she started, and she decided to notice what was going on, whether it was good or bad or whether it was what she was supposed to be doing or what she wasn't supposed to be doing. So she tr decided, in other words, to try to be just as, to make the same effort to be mindful when she was binge eating as when she wasn't. Because usually, you know, as soon as we have some problem like that, that's the time when we're not mindful because we get away from our mind that's always telling us what to do <laughs> and what's good for us. Because <laughs> if somebody, if you don't take somebody else's idea of what's good for you. You can have your own. <laughs> you don't have to take somebody else's. You can have your own ideas about what's the right thing to do and the wrong thing and the good thing and the bad thing. And so then, and you can tell yourself, you know. And so to get, rid of, get away from that voice, you can overeat or drink or, you know, drugs, lots of things, work hard, you know, go too fast, and you won't have to hear that voice. You know, and then when you come to again, the voice will say, see, I told you, if I leave you on your own, and if I'm not always telling you what to do, look what happens. <laughs> so what evidence do you have to, that you could find your own way, and not just do what you tell yourself, or what you think, some spiritual authority, or the psychiatrist, or the guru, or somebody says, this is the way to do it. So. I heard uh, not so long ago a story like this about... Um, someone who'd done a lot of practices and things, and finally she heard about a guru in India. So she went off to India and she found uh, some house. I wish I knew more about, you know, who, which guru this was. You know, it would be interesting to know. Um, but she located, you know, some address and she knocked and she's, she knocked and knocked and finally somebody comes to the door and she introduces herself and it's this teacher. And she said, um, I, I really like some ad advice. And so he said, okay. And she said, well, I've done this Zen practice and this Vipassana practice, and I've been to therapists, and I've been to gurus, and I've done all these different things, and nothing works. What should I do? Can you help me? And he thought about it and thought about it. And then finally he said, give up all techniques. 
And then she said, how do I do that? <laughs> We're back to the hot rock, aren't we? <laughs> So um, the hot rock in our life, you know, may be any number of things, but, you know, it's uh, often getting approval or being successful. Uh, how about, um, you know, everybody will always like you? And Seinfeld the other night, um, <laughs> it was the second time I'd seen this rerun. <laughs> I can't even remember those people's names. George. George dumped his girlfriend because Jerry's girlfriend was mad at him, didn't like him. And it was more important to him that Jerry's girlfriend like him than that his girlfriend. He said, I'm used to you not liking me, so I've, I've got to go straighten this out with her. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> or how about nobody will ever be mad at you? That's a good one. No. Anyway, there's a lot of hot rocks in our life. And then if you go, when we go around, you know, trying to... <laughs> Some people don't worry about this, do they? <laughs> this is an interesting talk tonight. <laughs> lost my place again. <laughs> we have a lot of hot rocks. Oh yeah, and <laughs> anyway, um, when we're busy, uh, you know, when we're busy trying to do what we're telling ourselves and do the right thing and, and everybody's always going to like me and, and nobody's going to get mad at me and then we're trying to say the right thing so that people are happy, they're not mad, and we're trying to do or not do the, the things. And pretty soon, how can you do anything? You know, and this is actually a way we make ourselves small. You know, and it's like trying to dodge. You know, oh, look out for that, and then you know, pretty soon you know, our bodies get... <laughs> we start learning this really young, of course. You know, how to shape our bodies so that we're performing properly. You know, a, a properly functioning human being. So, in this sense, you know, it's much easier to create a right and wrong, a morality, a right and wrong, good and bad, a morality than it is to create or find out how to live, you know, with, your, with integrity. You know, from your own heart. You know, to let the world to let uh, experience come home to your heart, let your heart respond. Because it's not about right and wrong. It's about being, you know, large. I'm sure you've heard Jack or other people read you that, that wonderful quote from Nelson Mandela's inaugural address. And he says, you know, you don't serve anyone by making yourself small. <clears throat> and it turns out, apparently, that Nelson Mandela's inaugural address was actually written by an anonymous woman. Did you know that? 
<laughs> Those guys, they take all the credit. <laughs> anyway, that was interesting to find out. <clears throat> so in some ways, you know, you could see spiritual practice is how to become large. And we actually become small when we start worrying about right and wrong, good and bad, how am I doing? And as soon as we, when we shift into judgment about those things, you know, then we get small. We feel small because we're being judged. And it actually doesn't matter whether you're doing the judging or you're being judged, you will start to feel small. And there's no way within that system of, within that realm of getting large. You could never be successful enough or have enough approval or enough money from the lottery or, you know, so that you could finally be expansive within the realm of judgment. So, and the other thing that happens, I mean, one of the other things that happens is your, our capacity to be observant and to notice and take in information, you know, diminishes, gets smaller. Because when we're busy judging ourselves or someone else, we're not actually perceiving much. We're just busy saying good and bad, better, worse, me compared to them, better, worse. <laughs> and we lose our capacity to actually be experiencing in our being what's going on. And if you, you know, if you have any doubts about it, you can check it out in your experience. You know, what do you notice? What are you noticing when you're busy judging? So I want to tell you another story. Um, I use this story every now and again, so some of you may have heard it. But uh, when I was cooking at Tassajara, uh, when I was first cooking there, and it was 1967, 68, and uh, Suzuki was still alive then. And, uh, uh, you know, I had asked him for some advice on, as the cook, what should I do? And he said, uh, when you wash the rice, wash the rice. When you cut the carrots, cut the carrots. When you stir the soup, stir the soup. So this is, you know, very good basic advice. Do what you're doing. And it turns out that, you know, it's not just the Zen people. Uh, when Governor Brown was down at, visiting at Tassajara, he said, well, then when he was a Jesuit, that's one of the first rules. Only they have it in Latin. <laughs> Which I don't know, but it's do what you're doing. It's uh, Loyola or Ignatius or whoever founded the Jesuits. And they have also liked the rule that when the bell for steady ends, you should stop immediately what you're doing, even if you're in the middle of writing the letter A. That's like, and do the next thing. You know, don't be, don't be stuck on what you're doing so that you can't, at a moment's notice, stop and go on to the next thing. <clears throat> Anyway, I, um, I thought I was doing pretty well at Suzuki Roshi's advice. When you wash the rice, wash the rice. And it didn't it seem to me like the other people I was working with weren't. <laughs> I thought I was doing better than they were. And But that's really good advice, and it, you know, it doesn't matter whether what you're doing is right or wrong. 
You know, the idea of that kind of advice is just throw yourself into doing what you're doing, whether it's right or wrong, good or bad, or it's a success or a failure, or it's a mistake, you should do it fully because actually it's as important to do fully your mistakes as your successes. Because if you're not doing your mistakes fully, it, then it's called denial. <laughs> I mean, what did you think? <laughs> so when you do your mistakes fully, and we in Zen we have things like um, when you like if you drop your chopsticks in the meditation hall. We're sitting on these raised platforms, so if you drop your chopsticks accidentally and they clatter onto the floor, everybody stops eating. <laughs> and somebody comes into the meditation hall, they pick up their chopsticks, they go over to the altar, and they bow to the altar to honor your mistake. And then they bring you back your chopsticks. <laughs> and everybody gets to honor your mistake with you. <laughs> anyway, um, but in spite of this kind of you know, practice, actually people at Zen Center are very concerned about not making mistakes. You know, this is a hard, you know, a difficult kind of teaching, you know, to do your mistakes is completely, but unless you do them completely and fully and you're in the doing of it, then, then at some point you know how you do that. You know how you do mistake or you know how you do criticism or you know how you do judgment. And if you do it when you're doing it, then you can also know how to not do it because you notice how you do do it. You don't say, oh, something came over me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not responsible for it. Because <laughs> you have to organize your body, your being in some way to do that sort of thing. To do whatever it is you're doing. You organize, you're organized a certain way to do that or to, you know, hide something, however it is. Uh, so I noticed the people who worked with me, they... Um, not only did they not seem to be doing what they're doing, I mean, like, they like to talk a lot while they were working. Now, some people have the capacity, like, when they're talking, their hands are still moving. But most people, when their mouths open, their hands stop. And I guess it's a form of doing what you're doing. You know, when you talk, you talk. You don't try to talk and work. <laughs> and I noticed also that people came to work late. I got there on time. <laughs> and they seemed to also take a long time to go to the bathroom sometimes. <laughs> you know, you'd think maybe five minutes, maybe ten minutes, sometimes twenty minutes, thirty minutes. <laughs> I found out, you know, later that people did not like working with me. <laughs> At the time, I didn't know it. <laughs> I thought I was being a good Zen student, and they weren't. <laughs> so finally, I went to ask my Zen teacher for some advice. I told him, these people are getting to work late. They take long bathroom breaks. When they talk, you know, their hands stop. They're not doing, you know, when they're Cutting the carrots, they're not cutting the carrots. You said, you know, we should be cutting the carrots when you cut the carrots. They're not doing this. <clears throat> he was, while I was telling them this, you know, he looked really sympathetic. He, he looked like, I understand you can't get good help these days. And <laughs> it's, it must be very frustrating for you. 
<laughs> anyway, when I finally finished um, telling him about this, he um, paused uh, for a minute. And I said, what should I do? You know, how do I get these people to behave better? <laughs> and he paused for a little bit and uh, he said, um, if you want to see virtue, uh, you'll have to have a calm mind. And right away I thought, that's not what I asked you. <laughs> I didn't ask you about how to see virtue. <laughs> I didn't ask you about a calm mind, but I didn't say anything. You know, I thought, okay. <laughs> it was frustrating, you know, not to get some good advice. <laughs> but I guess he'd noticed, like the people I was working with had noticed, that I was, did a lot of judging. And I was used to finding fault uh, in others and in myself. <clears throat> so I, I, little by little, I tried this out to see virtue. Uh, and I especially tried, as soon as I found fault with anybody, I thought, why don't I keep looking and see if I can find virtue? Because the tendency is once you judge someone and you find fault with yourself or someone else, then you stop perceiving and you will ignore any evidence to the contrary. So it's, you know, classic Buddhism that if you like someone, you will overlook their faults. And if you dislike someone, you will overlook their virtues. And you wouldn't want to be wrong about that, would you? About the judgment you made. This is very important, you know, not to be wrong about your judgments. So you would want to be very careful not to find any contradictory evidence. <laughs> this is fascinating, you know. So then I was trying, you know, to you know, as a practice, just to remind myself, well, you found some fault, now see if you can notice some virtue. And w basically what I noticed after a while is, boy, we're all trying awfully hard. And it's not easy being a human being. You know, it's not easy just, you know, being in a room with five or six other people cooking. It's not easy walking. It's not easy being with people and then, you know, having people see you being seen, <laughs> it's not so easy, you know, and you can't hide very well when you're in a group like that. <clears throat> and people were, uh, uh, as I say, you know, I noticed people were actually trying very hard. They were very sincere. And Suzuki Roshi used to say, you know, if a teacher uh, sees his disciple making a mistake, that's not a good teacher. So, and the emphasis then in Zen sometimes is, uh, you know, we say, and he used to say, if, you're, if you practice following the precepts, and you're trying to follow the precepts, this is breaking the precepts. If you're, if you're trying to do the right thing, not the wrong thing, and you're all the time checking, well, you made yourself really small. And you're, and you're trying to do this perfect behavior. And you've got a good hold on yourself. And 
you know. And pretty soon you can't, it's hard to say anything, it's hard to do anything, it's hard to have enthusiasm, vitality, joy, creativity. How can you have any of that when you're trying to do the right thing and not do the wrong thing? And so he would say, to follow the precepts is to, uh, you know, express yourself fully or to express your true nature. You see if you can express your true nature. And interestingly enough, you see, then at some point we say, whatever you do must be an expression of your true nature. Only sometimes, you know, it's not so good. Then Buddha and other people will say, that wasn't so good. <laughs> so we have, so we should have some precepts. <laughs> you see. But starting out with, you know, it's probably better to see, can you express your true nature? And we understand, you know, in Buddhism, which is true throughout Buddhism, that true nature, you know, is inherently compassionate, inherently wise. <clears throat> uh, so what this um, means also then is... Uh, you know, another way then to look at meditation or the rest of your life or wherever you want to think about it, um, you know, rather than trying to do the right thing and not the wrong thing or trying to do uh, good meditation, not bad meditation, you know, one of the ways to approach it is just to be finding out how to meditate. If you practice finding out, uh, then whatever happens, you will be successful. You will find out something. <laughs> you can't fail. You know, if you practice, I mean, and if you didn't find out anything, then you found that out. <laughs> you know, <clears throat> uh, there's this famous quote from Thomas Edison, you know, who, uh, that his engineers are trying hundreds of things in the light bulb to see if it could light in the vacuum tube. And, it, and, you know, one thing after another burned out. And finally his engineers were very discouraged. They said, well, we've tried hundreds of things and none of them work. And Edison said, nonsense. Um, uh, we've tried hundreds of things and we know they don't work. That's success. <laughs> it's useless, they said. And he said, nonsense. We've found all these things that don't work. <laughs> And a lot of, you know, what we're doing is finding out what doesn't work, as well as what does work. We'd like to do the does work and not the doesn't work. <clears throat> but our capacity, anyway, you know, our capacity will be improved to, to notice what we do and don't do and how we function in our life will be improved when we're not busy judging. And our capacity for joy and vitality, energy, uh, will increase. I explain to people sometimes, uh, I don't do as many cooking classes as I used to do, but when I do a uh, cutting demonstration, how to use a knife, I'm not really, I don't really try to show people how to use a knife. I tell people, you know, if you want to find out how to cut, you ask your hands to do it. And you give your hands permission to enjoy themselves. I explain to people sometimes, uh, I don't do as many cooking classes as I used to do, but when I do uh, cutting demonstration, 
how to use a knife. I'm not really, I don't really try to show people how to use a knife. I tell people, you know, if you want to find out how to cut, you ask your hands to do it. And you give your hands permission to enjoy themselves. You give your hands permission to find out how to cut. Because if you're busy telling yourself, here's the way to do it, you move like this, and then you move like this, and then like this, and then you should do this. And if you tell your hands like that, your hands, what will happen to your hands? Will your hands have a lot of vitality then? Will they have joy? Will they have happiness? Will they have energy? <laughs> That's not the way it works. So when you give your hands permission, like, oh, you could try various things and you could see what you enjoy doing. And you could try cutting this way and you could try cutting that way. And why don't you, you know, let's try this and why don't we try that? And your hands will find themselves doing things that you didn't, you didn't have to think of it. Your hands have that capacity to do that. And this is the same as you yourself have this capacity to find out how to live your life. When you give, you know, when we give ourselves permission to be finding out and trying one thing and trying another and seeing what happens and, you know, and then after a while, because we keep trying out and how to do that, you know, our skills and our capacity develops, our brings out our creativity, joy, energy, vitality, and you lose that in your hands when you always tell them, do this, now do that. <laughs> and then your eyes say, do what I tell you. <laughs> when your hands can do, you know, very well without your eyes. You don't need your eyes to direct your hands. But this is, so this is true, you know, throughout. Uh, so, for instance, in meditation, I used to, you know, at the same time I was in the kitchen there, thinking I knew better than other people how to cut, you know, cut the carrots when they cut the carrots, and so on. You know, <clears throat> in the meditation hall, I thought there was a right way to meditate. So I'd sit, and in Zen, sit up straight. <laughs> Everybody says sit up straight, but we sit up straight. And one day I was sitting in the meditation hall, and my back went like this. That's one of those moments like, who did that, you know? <laughs> and I thought, that's not the way to meditate, this is. And then my back went like that again. I said, no, this is Zen. I don't care. <laughs> no, this is, this is Zen. It's spiritual. Do this. No. Yes. No. So pretty soon I was sitting there going like this. <laughs> and then after a while I said, all right, have it your way. You know, you don't have to do the right thing. It's amazing. And then after a while, I'm sitting there. Okay, have it your way. And then after a while, my back said, excuse me, but could, could we sit up just a little bit? This is not really comfortable. <laughs> and I realized that, you know, there's not a right way to do something. There's like, what is your back like? What is my back like? You know, and so, and then I noticed, I knew that, you know, after when that happened, I knew that like that posture is not the way my back doesn't want to be back there, but that's reaction. My back goes back there as a reaction to being too far forward and being too rigid and, for, and sitting, you know, too far forward. And then my back goes, no, I don't like that. So then I go like, well, how about this? Do you like this? <laughs> and, 
where's the place that you really like? <laughs> you know, we can, we, can, we can find that out. I don't mind. <laughs> so since then, I've been studying, you know, I've been studying how to, how to meditate so that, you know, I like it. Isn't that revolutionary concept? I mean, <laughs> you can actually like it, and your body could like it. You know, and that's giving yourself your body and giving yourself permission to find out how to meditate. And this is, you know, so it has to do with, you know, trust, trusting that you could do that. Trust or confidence, faith, sometimes it's called faith. You know, in Buddhism, uh, trust or confidence, faith, shraddha, dives in. There's various analogies, but if the water is, um, you know, full of colors, sensory desires, bubbling and roiling, anger, uh, covered with slime and sludge, sloth and torpor. Um, anyway, uh, trust or confidence, faith, you know, faith dives in dives in and everything becomes clear. So when you actually dive into your life, it gets clarified. So uh, some trust or confidence and then, you know, this letting yourself find out, giving yourself permission to find your own way and feeling in your body, you know, where does, what does your body like? Where does your back, where is your back really comfortable? And what about your head? Where is your head, you know, happy? So, you know, if your head is like this, you see you're not happy after a while. <laughs> and that's because the back of your neck is pinched, you know. Back of your neck is, when your back of your neck is like that, that's a big no. No. <laughs> and it goes along with your sacrum, you know, if your sacrum is in no, that's no. That's complete no. <laughs> I won't. <laughs> you can't make me. <laughs> but and it's true, I can't, and I and I won't <laughs> make you. Um, but you know, you can find some place where your sacrum is pretty happy, and it's not completely yes, it's not completely no, and you have the capacity to say no and to say yes. And you know, it's important to be able to say both yes and no. Because when you can't say no, you can't say yes. If you can't have a definite no, that you know you have the power to say no, then how do you ever say yes? Because you you will worry about your capacity. You know, if you don't, if you can't say no, you will feel like you have no boundaries, and it's too easy for the world and other people to infringe on you. And your neck is the same way, you know. Yes. No. <laughs> so lately I experiment, you know, I found from Tai Chi, uh, someone said, uh, I didn't study Tai Chi, but just this one exercise I noticed, you let a soft wind come against your face, and it blows against your nose, and your head moves back slightly, and then there's a place where it kind of floats up. I thought, what a nice way to sit up straight, compared to, I'll sit up straight. <laughs> when you can let a soft breeze blow against your face. And it's similar to, you know, all the time there's soft breezes that can blow against your face. It's very similar to, 
you know, Thich Nhat Hanh all the time, when I was studying with him, would say, please enjoy your breath. And when he taught at Green Gulch, he would say, some of you would be doing walking meditation, he'd say, some of you are not smiling. (laughs) (laughs) And then he'd say, you're wasting your time. (laughs) That was hard for us Zen students. Because we were doing it right. Because <laughs> in Zen, you don't smile. In Japanese Zen, turned out there's this Vietnamese Zen where you smile. <laughs> and I told a group of people last summer, you know, that they could practice smiling, and a woman came up to me and said, you know, I've practiced smiling for a good deal of my life, and, you know, I'm tired of it. <laughs> And, you know, we women, you know, often need to be told, you know, you don't have to smile anymore. (laughs) So, okay, you know, I'm happy, you know, find your own way. (laughs) I don't mind. (sighs) I want to mention to you a couple other things that I've recently been finding are enjoyable. Uh, and because you might or might not find them enjoyable, and they might or might not be of interest to you, but I'll share them with you just as part of, you know, possible explorations for yourself. But one is the sides of your body. And it was especially nice tonight, you know, being in here. But the sides of the body are, you know, in many ways where we connect with other people. So when your arms are like against the sides of your body, you've got yourself protected from other people. And depending on your posture of your arms, you know, where you keep them. So we always suggest, you know, have your arms out. But whether your arms are out, you know, out a little bit from the sides or against your sides, uh, you know, if you actually, you know, just psychologically or, you know, in your mind, you can let the sides of your body be open and receptive. And you'll suddenly feel you know, like supported by everyone, rather than like, I have to, I have to watch out for them. Because <laughs> our habit is, keep the sides of the body closed. You know? So you might try that. You could try it now, or, you know, if you think about it, see what you notice. If you notice, like, when you, is there some way to, and one of the ways to do that is have breath in the side body, sides of your body. Just, and you don't have to make your body breathe there, you just have to see, are there any sensations of breath in the sides of your body? Hmm. <clears throat> and one other one uh, is the back of your heart. Back of your heart, um, it's, where is it, about T6 or T8? I don't know. But anyway, about the bottom of your shoulder blades in the back. The the lower part of your shoulder blades. But it's an area, <clears throat> the back of the heart is an area that's often kind of closed and tight. And we think, when we think about the heart, we often think about the front of our body. And we don't think about the back of the body. 
And if you actually bring some awareness to the back of your heart, especially if you're doing metta meditation, um, that's an area where if you bring awareness and just attention there to the back of the heart, uh, and when you have awareness there, then you have, you'll have a moment uh, or perhaps several moments of choice. You know, choice to forgive or not, choice to soften or not. And when your awareness is there, and you, if you, if you know, just physically, you soften the back of your heart, you know, it will shift, you know, things for you. <clears throat> so I don't, you know, I'm not. I think you understand I'm not giving you specific things to do, but I'm bringing these things up uh, just as examples of if you study finding your way and uh, seeing, you know, for yourself what what goes on in various places. Um, how am I organized? Uh, is the back of what kind of quality does the back of my heart have? You know, where is what kind of quality is there in my neck and you know, you will find out a lot. <clears throat> and uh, Zen, and I think uh, Zen, especially, you know, of the Buddhist traditions, uh, emphasizes how much we can learn through the body. Sometimes, you know, it's a change of pace. I remember being at a, uh, the, is Jack still doing the retreat at Santa Sabina in, 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 over Thanksgiving? And the, starting around the middle of November and into the first week of December. I went four or five years in a row. That's when I met Nina Weiss. And <clears throat> we sat next to each other, and then she watched me eat. Because <laughs> she noticed I was enjoying it. <laughs> but anyway... Um, I went to many of several of those several years in a row. I finally decided I'm spending Thanksgiving with my family to heck with this. <laughs> um, but one year, um, it was the year the toilets were out at the beginning of the retreat. And so we had to walk to the dormitory next door across the way uh, to the toilet. So I got in the habit of walking. I'd walk over the toilets. And then I found you could walk around the building and there was, um, you know, uh, snack machines and you know, <laughs> and there was a newspapers out in a particular area, and I could go read the you know the morning paper and you know the break after breakfast and you know. and that retreat I found you know it went on, and then I I found that all the walking meditations I was just going for a walk. <laughs> I wasn't doing that. Vipassana walking, just go for a walk, and then I then I started taking my camera. I have some great. <laughs> I was so depressed, and <laughs> I started taking pictures of the beautiful fall leaves, you know, and the trees, and um, so finally, after about a week, you know, I was just every walking meditation, I just get my camera and go out for a walk. And I'd walk up the hill and, you know, <clears throat> out across campus. And 
And so finally I had one of those, uh, what is it called, teacher interviews? <laughs> interviews with the teacher? Anyway, I went to see, I saw Jack Monley. You have all those group things first, and then, you know, it takes a while. You're a week or so into the thing before you get this private interview. And then I told him I wasn't doing any of that walking and stuff. Because and, I just, uh, when it came time for that, I just went for a walk. And I said, I don't dare, you know, actually walk slowly like that. So uh, so Jack stood up and said, well, why don't we try it? Would you like to try it now? So he, <laughs> he took me by the arm, you know. And of course, as soon as, you know, I, as soon as I made, you know, started to make even one, you know, just slow, slow step. You know, I started crying, just sobbing and sobbing. Uh, you know, we're very careful about the way we organize our body so that doesn't happen, normally speaking. <laughs> so you wouldn't want to walk too slowly, <laughs> just when you're out and about, you know. <laughs> <clears throat> but when, you know, this is why we have, you know, these retreats and things. to give you a place to do these things. Um, so then I started crying, and we walked, and little by little, down to the end of the room, and I was crying, and I couldn't see where I was going, and, but Jack was at my arm. <clears throat> so it's pretty fascinating, you know, and that's all there, and then, you know, that kind of crying is not about anything happening today, is it? You know, a lot of our life isn't about today. I mean, you know, especially emotions, they're not today at all. And, you know, we find somebody to blame. And people say, well, why are you sad? And I got a human life. I'm sorry. <laughs> I got born on the planet Earth, all right? <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> Do you ever think of that like, don't you think that you know, like the, somebody out there must have lowered the entrance standards? <laughs> I mean, because now there's like four billion or five billion people. Where are they getting all these souls, you know, to be human beings? You know, they used to have these high standards, and then you know, more and more they want more and more people, so they have to lower the standards. You know. <laughs> Or do they just import souls from further away, you know? <laughs> do you think they have advertising out there in the Bardo, you know, go to, go to Earth, go to Earth, get a life. <laughs> oh, boy. I don't really think that's the answer, you know, I mean, like, the story of our life. I think, you know, we come, I, I tend to believe, you know, we come here for some reason, you know, with some purpose. And, you know, and part of our meditation is also like, well, what is our purpose? And probably why we're meditating. You know, some of us came here to meditate. But your meditation, you know, anytime, your meditation, you know, when, when you decide, when, once we decide, anybody decides, 
I'm going to find out how to meditate, and I'll keep finding out how to meditate. That's real different than, I think I'll check out this meditation, see how it goes. If I like it, I'll do it, and if I don't, I won't. And if it's okay, okay, and then if it's not, skip it. <laughs> it's so different to do anything like that than it is, I really am interested in meditation. I, this, is, this is fascinating to me. I think I really like to sit still. I want to find out what this is about. This is interesting to me. Just like anything else, right? Your curiosity, your interest, you know, your enthusiasm, your energy, and you, and you, you know, and it comes out of your being. So Suzuki Roshi used to say, meditation is wisdom seeking wisdom. Because you already have wisdom, then you seek wisdom. And it's wise to seek wisdom. <laughs> it's wisdom seeking wisdom, you know, it's finding your way. So when you're interested and you, it's something you, you know, it's just something you're curious about, you're interested in, you want to do it. You know, then it goes forward of its own accord, whether you have, you know, good directions, bad directions, <laughs> good technique, bad technique, who cares? It doesn't matter. Because then that's an expression of, you know, your true nature. It's an expression of your integrity, your sincerity, rather than about being good, you know, being a success, getting approval. People will look up to me and so forth. Well, would you like a poem or two to end the evening? <laughs> I didn't mean to talk this long, I'm sorry, but, you know, that's the way it goes sometimes. <laughs> um, I want to tell you, I want to tell you two poems. Uh, so then the question is, which one first? <laughs> I'll tell you the Rumi poem first. Okay, the story water. Do you know story water? <clears throat> so uh, this is my shorthand version, poem version of what we've been talking about tonight. <laughs> A story is like the water you heat for your bath. It takes messages from the fire to your skin. It lets them meet and it cleans you. Very few of us can sit down in the middle of the fire itself like a salamander or Abraham. We need intermediaries. A feeling of fullness comes, but usually it takes some bread to bring it. Beauty surrounds us, but we need to walk in a garden to know it. The body itself is a screen to shield and partially reveal the light that's blazing inside your presence. Stories, water, the body, all the things we do are mediums that hide and show what's hidden. Study them and enjoy this being washed with a secret we sometimes know and then not. <clears throat> I think you can get the flavor of how this poem is not about right and wrong, good and bad. It moves, you know, it's bigger than that. You know, in each of our lives, our lives are bigger than that. <clears throat> Can I tell it to you again? Mm 
disappoint. A story is like the water we heat for our bath. It takes messages from the fire to your skin. It lets them meet and it cleans you. Very few of us can sit down in the middle of the fire itself. Like a salamander or Abraham, we need intermediaries. A feeling of fullness comes, but usually it takes some bread to bring it. We're surrounded by beauty, but we need to walk in a garden to know it. <clears throat> the body itself is a screen to shield and partially reveal the light that's blazing inside your presence. Stories water the body. All the things we do are mediums that hide and show what's hidden. Study them and enjoy this being washed with a secret we sometimes know and then not. <clears throat> <clears throat> I'm going to tell you another poem. Oh, this is actually just part of a poem. I'm not going to tell you the whole story about the poem. Um, but it was in the New Yorker magazine in 1948. It's a poem called The Little Duck. It's by someone named Donald C. Babcock. <clears throat> and this is, I'll tell you, I'm just telling you a part of the poem. <clears throat> now we're ready to look at something pretty special. It's a duck riding the waves a hundred feet beyond the surf, and he cuddles in the swells. She can rest while the Atlantic heaves because she rests in the Atlantic. Probably he doesn't know how large the ocean is, and neither do you. But what does she do, I ask you? She sits down in it. She rests in the immediate as though it were infinity, which it is. That's religion, and the little duck has it. I like the little duck. He doesn't know much, but he has religion. <laughs> so all of you ducks out there, <laughs> sit down in the middle of it. <laughs> I mean, if that's what you're, you know, interested in. <laughs> Anyway, thank you. Um, I, uh, if any of you, thank you. Okay. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.